0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Of course, when you're my age, it's good to be anywhere. It was my privilege to serve as one of the founding leaders of Grace Church. Some years ago, we were privileged to serve by the grace of God for like 17 years. And then in the year 2015, I stepped down to retire. I believe I was uh, 71 at the time, and the young man that uh, succeeded me was 26. So there was something of a gap. I feel like a forerunner. I feel like John the Baptist, because next Sunday, your new pastor takes over. So I feel like I am a forerunner to his life, his ministry, whatever God has for him. I wanted to dress the part of John the Baptist. Walmart was out of camel's hair, and Kroger didn't have any wild honey and locusts. So I thought, well, I can't do that, but um, I can speak before your pastor comes and uh, will challenge you, teach you, edify you, inspire you in the magnificent truth of the word of God. There's a legend. Legend has it that one day Satan had a sail. He labeled and laid out all the tools of his trade with a price tag. Hatred, bitterness, malice, jealousy, gossip, lust, and all the others. They were all there laid out for people to see and to purchase off to the side was was one tool marked discouragement it was old worn out tired looking but priced higher than all the others satan was asked why why is discouragement marked higher than the others he replied because I can use this one much more easily than all the others. No one knows it's from me. With it, I can open doors that are tightly bolted against the others. And once inside, I can use any tool, any tool that I want to use. To discourage definition of it is it means devoid of um, courage, devoid of uh, strength, hope, confidence. It's losing stamina. It's saying to yourself, what's the use? I will never recover. Why keep going? It'll always be this way. Nothing will ever change. People who once loved you now oppose you. Those that you love have failed miserably in the past. Or maybe you caused grief, sorrow for those that you love. Some of you are living in a failed marriage. It's miserable. You've worked for improvement. You've been to counseling. Going nowhere, nowhere, so you're ready to quit. Get out of it. Some have enormous financial debt, or they're wrestling with physical issues that are draining them emotionally. Some are getting old. That's discouraging. Your get up and go has gotten up and left. So we're discouraged. The wind has been kicked out of our sails. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Ephesians 3:13. That verse, you'll notice, Paul uses the word discouraged. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So because of this discouragement amongst the Ephesians, he prays in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. It moves him to pray. And then in verses 16 through 19, he outlines the request that he prays for these people who have lost heart. That's what his prayer is about. It's a prayer for motivation, for resolution, to keep moving, to keep going. That's the heart of the prayer. And that's where you begin. You begin with prayer, a prayer that you pray for yourself or a prayer that someone else prays on your behalf. I noticed several things about this passage. One is that it's an immense, it's an intense prayer that's prayed to God the Father. You see that in verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray. I pray according to his glorious riches. Usually when Jews prayed, they prayed standing up with their arms outstretched, They bowed only when the situation was intense, deeply moving, heavy. You'll remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane fell on his face in prayer. He was gripped by the reality of taking our sins upon himself and dying for those sins. That death was for him, and he felt it deeply. So here Paul falls to his knees with deep emotion and concern for the Ephesians who have lost heart, who are discouraged. It moved him. It moved him to pray. You'll notice also that he prays to God the Father. You see, God is a father. He is the epitome of fatherhood. He's what every father should be like. As a father, He gives to His children ready access. You never have to wait in line to get a word in to your father. When we come, He gives us full attention. He's not distracted, He's not thinking about something else. You have his full attention. He's immediately concerned, and he is deeply involved in what you are asking of him. That's a father. It's interesting. Fathers, this is something that we can portray to our children. When they come to us, they need to see something of the heart of the heavenly father. They need to see in your life, dad, that you are readily accessible that when they come, you are immediately concerned and you are deeply involved in why they are coming to you. You see, as they grow, as they develop, they need to see in your life as a father, something of the earthly a Father that God has put into their life. So Paul prays, an intense prayer. Praise it to God the Father, but you'll notice one other thing in verse 16. He prays according to the riches of God's abundant grace. My translation, the New International, and yours as well, may read out of his riches. That's not a good translation. The Greek term is kata which means according to, not out of, what's the difference? Out of speaks of a portion of one's riches and wealth. If a billionaire gave you $100 to meet a $5,000 need, they have given out of their wealth. In other words, it's only a portion. It's a pittance of the wealth that they have amassed. According to means consistent with their wealth. It's not a portion. It's really in proportion to all that they have. That billionaire hands you their credit card and says, have at it. Their wealth has been put at your disposal because they have given according to, consistent with the wealth that they have amassed. God always gives, my friend, in proportion to all that he has, to all of his riches, not just a small sliver, small portion here and there, but a consistent according to all of his riches. Now that moves us into four bold requests or petitions that Paul prays in this intense prayer. That's verses 16 through 19. The first request, the first petition is there in verse 16. It is that we might be strengthened with power in our innermost being, in our inner being, in our inner man. That's what he says in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Your inner being is the deepest, most fundamental part of your life. It's your heart, the very core of your being. It's who you really are. You see, that inner man, that inner being is far more important than your outer man because it's from that inner being that your heart, your mouth speaks and your actions are produced. Proverbs tells us that that inner being, that heart, is the wellness of our life. So Paul's prayer is directed to that inner part of our life, something or someone has broken your heart and you're discouraged, you're indifferent, you're dead in your spiritual experience. That's where God begins to work. That's where recovery starts, deep in your innermost being. So Paul prays that we be strengthened, that we be fortified, that we be braced, that we be invigorated deep inside of us in this inner portion of our life, our inner being. How? How do you do that? By some motivational gimmick or a feel better about yourself seminar? No. That's human Strengthening, and at best, it is limiting. If it works, it only works for a little while. It's temporary. It's never, never permanent. Inner strengthening is by the power, the dunamis, the dynamic power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's where the strengthening comes from, from the Spirit, not from yourself. Zechariah 4.6 says, not by human might, nor by human power or ability, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Psalm 138, verse 3. David writes, When I call, Lord, you answered me, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. You see, that's it. That's where the spirit of life infuses his strengthening. It's in the heart that's been ripped apart Discouraged, feeling deeply a loss or a grief and you are discouraged. That's where the spirit works by his dunamis, by his power. You'll notice that that inner strengthening results in something. It results in really knowing knowing experientially, knowing it in your life so much so that you are living it, what are you living? That Christ dwells in you. You say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that Christ always lives in the life of a Christian. That happened at the moment of salvation when we understood and we believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus that Christ came into our life. This verse sounds like it doesn't. He doesn't come in. What's Paul really trying to say? Look at the word dwell. The word means to settle down, to settle in, to be comfortable. That's a marvelous, marvelous truth. It means that as you are strengthened, inwardly by the Holy Spirit, you will come to the realization that you begin to live out, that this living Christ is there to permanently settle into the life. And you begin to know it to the point of living it. You see, so often we know about truth, We know the facts. We've heard it preached. We've studied it on our own. But for some reason, it hasn't settled into the life to the point that we're actually living it. So Paul is saying, as you're being strengthened inwardly, you come to this living truth that the Lord Jesus has entered into your life to settle into it and not just make occasional visits. And when he settles into the life, he wants to take over the mind and control every part of that life. That's what his settling into the life wants to produce. Where you allow the Lord Jesus to come into your mind, what you actually think about and what you imagine. That you allow the living Christ to look into your appetites, what you crave, what you long for, your will, how you make your decisions, your choices, your emotions, how you respond to people and to situations, as well as those secret things that you think nobody really knows about the stuff that you keep under lock and key. When Christ settles into the life, he wants to move and take control of those hidden things that you don't want anybody to know about. I've always enjoyed a little booklet that's entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. I believe it's available on Amazon. You can get it if you'd like so helpful. It pictures our heart, our inner being, like a house that has rooms in it. And this writer writes that one day the Lord Jesus came into his heart at the point of salvation. He settled into the life, but as he settled in, he wanted to move into each room of that person's heart and life. Christ wanted to invade the library of his mind. He wanted to invade the dining room, those appetites, those cravings, even into the workshop in what that person was producing. And the Lord Jesus asked for the keys to the hidden closet. That smelly, junked-up closet in the hallway that nobody really knows about or has opened up, Christ says, give me the keys. Let me invade that hidden closet. When you lose heart, fervently pray for God to strengthen you inwardly so that the result is you living in your life that Christ is really there and he wants to see himself glorified in that life. He's presently alive and he is possessing you. That's the inward strengthening that the spirit desires to produce. Yes, even when you're knocked out, knocked down, Discouraged in the pits, you pray for that inward strengthening. Well, that's only the first petition. There's a second one that he prays, it's in verse 17. You see it? I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Second petition, to be rooted and grounded in a lifestyle of love. Let's face it, when we're down and out, when we're discouraged, we isolate. We pull back from others. We're absorbed in ourselves. That's all we can think about is our situation. We lose our connectedness with others when we lose heart. So Paul prays for a strengthening in love. Love, it's the most preeminent quality of the Christian life. It's more preeminent than Bible knowledge or theology. 1 Corinthians 13, three things abide forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So Paul is praying that these discouraged Christians in Ephesus would be strengthening with love so much so that it becomes dominant in a lifestyle of their life. Two metaphors are used here. Really good metaphors. Both of them express authenticity, stability, maturity, and depth. One is the metaphor of a well-rooted tree that doesn't bend or break under pressure. Love is the soil that produces a well-stabilized life. The other other metaphor is of, a, um, is of a well-built house, a well-built house that doesn't shake during a storm. Love is the foundation upon which this house is built. So you have the well-rooted tree and you have the well-established house, both of them together are speaking of a love, a love that dominates your life, where love becomes just a regular part of your life. At every opportunity where you have the chance, you are loving for the good, for the benefit of someone else. Now, this is agape love. It's a love that is self-denying. It is self-giving. It is self-sacrificing. It's love, listen to this, it's love that gets us out of our self and out of our private confinement. It's a love that moves in the direction of another person, and we begin to live for the good of that other person no matter who they are, what they have or what they don't have. We are moving out in love to that person of the opposite race or political persuasion from us. We are living for the good of that friend whose child is struggling deeply with their identity. We love the person that wife who lost her husband through COVID. We reach out in love to the cancer patient, to the one who has lost hope in life, to the addict, to the lonely, to the divorced. We're reaching out in this lifestyle of loving. It's become our life because we have prayed for God's strengthening to move us into the lives of others to really love them. And in the body of Christ, we practice and we do the one another's with each other. Loving one another, encouraging one another, building up one another, honoring one another, serving one another, praying for one another. Again, the picture, a lifestyle a lifestyle of loving for the benefit of others. So when we're down, we pray that God would create within us that deeper abiding love that will so impact our life that we love each other well. And we are dominated. That's the idea, that we are dominated by that love. It's the third petition. As I said, there's four of them. We're now at the third one. And this is moving. We've sung about it this morning so well, so beautifully. Third petition. To be strengthened to know. And not just know in the head but to know in the life, not just something you believe, but you believe it to the point of actually living it out, to live out the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's beautiful. You see, that petition for Christ's love, it's not to be analyzed. It's not to be exegeted. It's to be realized. You grasp it. You own it. You possess it. So that that love of Christ becomes so real that you live in it on a regular basis. Let me tell you the story about Mabel. Mabel. Mabel is mentioned in John Ortberg's really fine book entitled, "The Life You've Always Wanted to Live." Let me tell you about Mabel. She lived in a state, state-run convalescent hospital. The place was um, understaffed yet overfilled with lonely helpless people who were just just waiting to die. The hospital was dark, smelled, smelled of sickness, smelled of stale urine. And here was Mabel, living for 25 years in this state-run hospital, During the day, just strapped to her wheelchair, falling asleep frequently in the hallway. Mabel was 89 years old when she had a visitor. She was blind, almost deaf. deaf. Cancer had eaten away one side of her face so that her nose was pushed off to the side. One eye drooped. Her jaw was distorted. She drooled continuously. Those on staff hated to take their turn to feed Mabel. She was such a pitiful, pitiful sight. No one wanted to get close or even look at her. But they had to take their turn in feeding Mabel. One day she had a visitor. And he asked her, Mabel, do you sit here throughout the day, all of the years that you've been here? What do you think, Bill? Mabel, with something of a smile, said, hmm. I think about my Jesus. Mabel, what do you think about your Jesus? And these were her words. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folk wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned. I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing that old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my joy, my life, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. That, my friend, is living in the love of Jesus. That surpasses knowledge. I'm a fan of the old classical hymns of the church. Not that I don't appreciate and enjoy some of the contemporary songs that we sing so often here at Grace Church. But I really love the hymns. And there's one in particular. It's Jesus, I am resting. Resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. And the third verse. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, there it is, thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need, compasseth me round with blessings. Thine is love indeed. That's it. That's the love of Christ, surpassing knowledge. And Paul writes that this love is wide enough to cover any person regardless of their race. That's how wide it is. It's long enough to go beyond any barrier. Barriers cannot stand in the the way of the love of Christ. His love is high enough to take us on to glory and even beyond. It's deep enough to touch any hurt, any need, any sin. So we pray that we will know and live in this love that as Isaac Watts said is so amazing. It is so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. One more petition, fourth and final one. It's to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Verse 19, what does that mean? It means that you overflow to the fullest extent of your human capacities with God's fullness. Doesn't mean that you become God. Doesn't mean that God becomes you. It means that the essence of God's fullness is living in your life. Let's say you have a jar and you go to the Pacific Ocean and you put seawater into that jar. You fill it up to the brim and then you take it home. It's not that you have all of the ocean in the jar. That's impossible. But what you have is the essence, the nature of that ocean. And that's what Paul prays for here. That we be filled with the essence of the fullness of God, his very nature. And when that happens, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is expressed in the life. Because we've been filled with the essence of God's fullness. Remember Moses when he came off the mountain? His face radiated with the glory of God. So that's what we pray. We pray that we be filled with the essence of God's fullness so that it radiates out of our life. What a prayer. What a prayer to pray when you're in the pits. And if you haven't been in the pits, you will be at some point. What a prayer. A prayer for inner strengthening from the Holy Spirit with Christ settling into your life, possessing you. A prayer to be rooted and grounded in a lifestyle of loving. Of reaching out to others. A prayer to be able to grasp somehow the amazing love of Jesus Christ in all of its dimensions. And a prayer to be filled with God's fullness. Who in the world could pull that one off? Who else can see that become a reality in the life? You never, God. That's why you have verses 20 and 21. He's the one that can see it happen. Look what he says. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let me break down that verse this way. God, through Christ, is able to do, he's able to work He's not inactive. He's not idle. He's not too busy. He's able to do. Second, he's able to do what we ask. He hears. He answers those petitions that we've just mentioned. He hears every one of them. He's able to do what we ask. The third, he's able to do Even what we think, what's going on in our minds, he knows what we think about or even imagine, and he's able to pull it off in those things we think about. Fourth, he's able to do all, all that we ask or think. And if that's not enough, he's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. That word immeasurably more is a, well, it's a super superlative. In Greek, it's the word huper ek periso. It means vastly more than more, exceeding the limits. There are no limits to what God is able to pull off in your life. And in the dynamic of this church, immeasurably more, he can do it. So I want to close with a challenge. Here's the challenge. I want you to do something every day of your life until Jesus comes and takes you to heaven. So what I want you to do. Two things. First, I want you to pray this prayer for yourself. Well, oh, I don't know how to express Well, just read the words of the passage. Just pray those words. Pray the truth for yourself. Second, pray the prayer for someone else. Someone else you're connected with. someone whose heart has been broken and they're dying on the inside. Pray the prayer for them, for yourself, for them, every day, every day. Father, we're amazed at this truth we've tried to lift ourselves out of the pits hasn't worked we're down defeated we've lost our hearts they've been broken but you've put before us a stabilizing prayer for us to pray God, give us the grace to pray. We may not feel like it. We're that discouraged. We're just not. And Father, give us the strength to take out this truth and read it for ourselves, for someone else. And we trust you to do far more than we could ever ask or think imagine immeasurably more, exceeding the limits of what you can do. Help us to live. Help us to live, Father, in this magnificent truth. In Jesus' name, amen.